I am going to jump right in because we've got a lot to, to cover today. Uh, this is, uh, we've just started into a, a series on Colossians, if you were here last week. And I want to um, try to get through all of this in, a, uh, in the amount of time that we have. So I'm actually, last week I was a little rushed to get through it all and had to kind of rush through some of the uh, remaining scriptures towards the end there. This week I've decided, and uh, Kevin suggested it, which was a great suggestion, that I actually uh, go back over some of those in the end there that we rushed through. And particularly, this is, these are the verses uh, in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, which I told you uh, focus on the preeminence of Christ because they really are important. And they're not only important to understand in the light of, uh, of the situation going on back then in Colossae, but they're actually very important for us to understand for the situation that most churches are in today in our society, in our culture. The preeminence of Christ as I mentioned to you, the preeminent preeminence just means supreme, having gone before any other, having, uh, being above any other. So when you see that word preeminence, it just means supreme above all others. And so the preeminence of Christ is key to us navigating a culture with such a mixture of religions and movements that bombard us each day through uh, our modern technology, through social media. They're just, we're surrounded by this in this day and age. So the preeminence of Christ is like our compass that always points north. This will help us, no matter how confusing or convincing the world around us might seem with uh, their arguments and their um, teachings or their confusion. The preeminence of Christ is like a compass for us. So we're going to dig in to those scriptures, in particular verses 15 through 23, a little more deeply. Uh, So I'm going to just read that passage again so we're all on the same page, and then we'll start looking at each, each one. And this is what it says. Looks like I've got through verse 20 here, uh, which is fine. We're going to go on to 21, 22, and 23 afterwards. Paul's writing, he says, He is the image, talking about Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And in everything he might that in everything he might be preeminent. So let's go into each one and take a look. 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. This is significant because uh, if you remember in Scripture, we know that it tells us that God the Father is spirit. Uh, in John 4, 24, John writes, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, that doesn't mean uh, that his presence is not known or that he cannot be seen, but it does mean no one has seen his face, or at least no one has seen his face and lived to tell about it. Now, if you remember that uh, even Moses, who the Bible says talked to God face to face, like a friend, it says, but he was actually unable to see God's face. And if you look at Exodus, you don't have to turn there, I'll have it on the, the screen, but let's just look real quick at Exodus 33, uh, 7 through 11. You've heard of the tent of meetings, and that was the tent that they would set up, and inside this tent of meeting is where they would seek God, they would uh, petition God, and Moses especially would go in and meet with God. Listen to what it says. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant, Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Now, it says here face-to-face, -face, but what we will see next is it's actually not face-to-face. -face. He was in the presence of God, but I guess you could look at it as this was a, a portion of God's presence or a form of God's presence, but that, that was not the intense face-to-face -face because we read it next, what, uh, what it says here. It says Moses, now this is, this is when Moses was, they were getting ready to go in the promised land. Moses was concerned about all of the territory that they were going to supposedly take uh, to become their own, to be, the, this is the promised land God promised them, but they had, uh, they were very concerned about the multitudes of nations that lived here, big, big uh, armies of people. And he was wanting to be sure that God was going to go with them. Moses said, please show me. And so he's, he's kind of having this debate with God. And, he, and he's saying, how, how do I know? Who, who's, who are you sending with us to go into this land to know that we will conquer it? And God is saying, I will go with you. And it's like Moses just... He just wanted more, and he, and, he, and he 
was kind of going back and forth. And then he finally says, show me more. And it, this, is what it, this is where it picks up here. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see my face and live. He shall not see me and live, talking about his face. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now this is, you know, this is difficult for us to kind of understand. God is spirit. So, he doesn't necessarily have a form in which he has to uh, be contained. And, but yet he, he describes himself sometimes, his hands, his, um, his arms, his ears. He describes himself as having uh, body parts, if you will, but we know that uh, these are not what we would, be, what we would expect uh, as a human body. He is a spirit, and so his ways are so far above our ways. Uh, and it's very hard for us to get our minds wrapped around this, but this is what Scripture describes, uh, how, he, how it describes our God. And so you can see that uh, this statement that Paul makes um, is an incredible statement when he says that he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of of the invisible God. And he states it again in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. It's on the screen here. It says, Paul said, in their case, the God of this, we're talking about unbelievers, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is incredible. He is the image of the invisible God. The next part here says the firstborn of all creation. Now, firstborn used in this way is referring to the role of a firstborn son. In ancient Hebrew culture, the firstborn son shared the authority of his father. He would inherit most of his father's property, and he was especially favored. So when it says uh, Jesus as the firstborn, that's what it's stating, that he is the one to receive all of these blessings from his father. He shares the authority of his father. He inherits all that his father owns, and he is especially favored above all others. The firstborn of all creation. Now, just make a little note of this. We don't have time to read it, but I want you to take a look at um, 
Hebrews chapter 1, when you get a chance. That is packed. The whole chapter is packed full of this right here, the, the preeminence of Christ, and also how he is the firstborn, meaning he is above all others, supreme to all others, including the angels. Even his name is greater. And Hebrews chapter 1 just lays it out just very succinctly. So I would encourage you to take, take a look at Hebrews chapter 1. So let's move on. By him, uh, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now, nothing proves Christ's uh, preeminence more than to know he created everything, both in heaven and on earth. There is no greater being, truly, than the one who has created everything. So to make this abundantly clear, Paul writes that the invisible beings were also created by him and for him. Paul describes them as thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. So no doubt there is a structure to not only God's kingdom, but the kingdom of darkness as well, the angelic kingdom, the unseen world, there is an order and a structure to it that Paul alludes to here. But all of them, and are, there's great power in these authorities, but all of them were created through Christ and for Christ. And he is above them all. Let's take a look at verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now this should be reassuring to the, um, the environmental activists of our world, if only they knew him. <laughs> the climate is held together by Christ. The oceans are held together by Christ. The atmosphere, the animals, the trees, the rivers, the soil, everything that he created, he also holds together according to his Father's will. So regarding the environment, we can relax and trust that Christ holds everything together. Well, if we go on to uh, verse 18, it says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, church, what greater assurance could we have than knowing Jesus Christ, the one who is supreme, 
the one who has authority over all created beings in both heaven and earth, is the one who is head of our church and is the one who is head of every church who is preaching truth and truly following Christ. He is the head. But he's not only the head, he is also the firstborn. It says the firstborn from the dead. And this would be uh, alluding to, as I said earlier, um, the, the one who is, goes before everyone else. So the firstborn of the dead, he experienced death and he experienced resurrection. And he is the one that has gone before all to experience this. He is the one who gives new life to those who are following after him in death. He is preeminent in this. He is the firstborn in this. He died in a fleshly body. The Father resurrected him. He is firstborn in having experienced that. And he goes before us in that. And so when we join him in death and dying to ourselves and our lives, and this is beautifully uh, illustrated when we are baptized in water, we are baptized into his death, and we are resurrected again with new life. that in everything he might be preeminent. And in verses 19 through 20, it says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to recon- reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's ponder that for a little bit, because it says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You know, there's throughout Scripture, Old Testament included, we see glimpses of the Spirit of God coming upon his servants, his prophets, his kings. Throughout Scripture, we see glimpses of the Holy Spirit coming upon God's people and his servants. But there's a limitation there. It's a portion. But the difference here with, with Jesus, with Christ, it says here that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. And we know that Jesus, when he began his ministry, he began his ministry with the Spirit of God coming upon him. And he went out with the power that that Spirit brings and began his ministry. God reconciled all things to himself through Christ, it says here, and the blood that he shed on the cross. Now, this does not mean that 
all people will be redeemed. And that's a teaching that uh, is out there that you will come across. That, that basically, because of what Jesus has done and has reconciled to, to God all things, they then say all things means all people. All people have been reconciled. There's nothing that we have to uh, do. There's no distinction. All people in the end will be reconciled and brought into eternity with Christ. And that's uh, unfortunate that they come to that conclusion because if you look at all the Scripture, it clearly does not state that. So we have to be careful there. But what it does mean is it means that there is now a way of redemption. There is now a way to be reconciled with God and redeemed. Redeemed means something that was going to be uh, thrown away, something that would perish, is now being redeemed. And there is a way now, and that way is Jesus Christ. And all of these all of these statements, these powerful statements that, that Paul is making is to set up, and, and we'll see why as we get into some of the issues that were going on in Colossae and the, the Colossians and the church there, are, are very relevant not only to there but to, to here and for us now. If you want to be able to judge and discern whether something is uh, truth and rooted in truth, these statements will be that compass for you, always pointing north. What does this religion say about Christ? What does this, uh, this new way or this uh, new practice, what does it say about Jesus Christ? Who do they say he is? Is he preeminent? Or is he just another God or just another good person or just another role model for us? So this is truly a way to be able to help judge and discern all of the many things that are coming into not only our culture and our society, but into our churches. There's, a, there's this mixture of religions that are not only that has infiltrated our nation, but it's coming into the churches as well. And then in coming weeks, we're going to get into those a little bit more. But the reason this is so vital, and I wanted to back up and, and dig in a little bit more, is that we really get this into us as our compass, and that is the preeminence of Christ who he is, and what that means. Now, the next verses we, we looked at last week, I want to look at them again, which is uh, verses 21 through 23. This is what it says. Paul says, And you, who once were alienated, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you 
holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And then he says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. What this is telling us is that Jesus has made it possible for your sins to be forgiven so you can be reconciled with God. But I just, I get so excited about this right here because the reason he did this and what he promises to do for us is that he has done this to, in order to present us holy and blameless, above reproach, before God. And it says that Jesus will make sure of this. It says Jesus will make sure of this if, if, we have to pay attention to the if, if we remain in him, if we remain steadfast in the faith. Jesus said it himself. He said, remain in me, abide in me. Uh, John 15, I don't have it on the screen, but I just, I just want to read it because it's such a beautiful reminder from Jesus himself about this. So if you want to turn there and read along with me, John chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me. Or you could say, remain in me. Stay in me. Abide in me. And I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide, listen, this is what. Paul is saying, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If, if you abide in me, Jesus says, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples." As a father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Jesus is saying the same thing that Paul is stating here, and so many other New Testament writers have the same warnings for us believers to remain in Christ, to stay steadfast in the faith, to abide in Christ. 
and the warnings are for us to, to help us. And the warnings of not remaining in Christ are sobering. But look at the promise. Jesus said that he himself will make sure that on that day that we are presented before the Father, that he will have made us holy and blameless and above reproach. And that's what I was alluding to last week when we talked about this, this process, this way. They, they described the, the believers as the way because they were on a way, a path, a way of living. And Jesus often described it as a path, those who follow me. And talking about to go your own way or the way of the world, that's an easy path, a wide road. But it leads to destruction. Narrow is the path that leads to life. Few will find it. But that leads to life. But it is a way. It is a process that we must stay on. When we get off that path, we repent and we get back to that path. And we continue on it. And Jesus says if we do that, In other words, if we abide in Him and remain in Him in that way, He guarantees that He's going to make us holy as God is holy so that we will be able to see Him. He says He will make us blameless. He says that He will make us above reproach. But I don't know about you, but for me, that is a process and it's going to take some time. But Lord, His graciousness, Lord willing, and that I remain steadfast and remain in Him, He has guaranteed the result. So I think that's an incredible thing. The warnings are there, and we must pay attention to them. But the promises, when we, yield, when we take heed of those warnings, the promises that are promised to us are absolutely incredible. The reason that, uh, and, and it's mentioned in, in several verses we've read here, but the reason that it's important that we know God's Son, Jesus Christ, came in the flesh. You'll see that a lot. Came in the flesh. The reason that's so important and it's so beautiful to us is this. Because God came in the flesh, He understands all of our weaknesses. He understands all of our temptations. He understands all of our trials and our tribulations. He understands all of the the testing and the things that we face. He understands when your body is ailing, you're, you're facing a surgery. He understands when uh, a loved one has passed away. He understands when you're dealing with a besetting sin that you don't want in your life, but you keep falling into it again and again. He understands all of these things because he understands our weaknesses. 
But the Bible says that he, he understands them. He has been in the flesh. He understands, yet he was without sin. So not only does he understand them and can sympathize with us, but he lived the life that was required of God for us on our behalf. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, it says this. The Hebrew writer says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy. And listen, grace is just not a, yeah, that's okay, yeah, that's okay, no. And find grace to help in time of need. Clearly, this is stating Jesus is God who came in the flesh, lived in our bodies, bodies and understands our weaknesses, all of them. This is why this is so incredible and why it's so important that every, um, every true Christian person or church needs to needs to know this and believe in this and defend this, that Jesus Christ, who is God, came, the image of God came in the flesh. But most of all, it's so important for us to encourage us that He understands. It can be discouraging for us to think that a God who's so holy and good and perfect and awesome and so much higher than us he just he just doesn't understand what I'm dealing with and what I'm going through I mean it it, it kind of makes a div- big divide there for us to be able to relate to that but he sent his son to live in the flesh the same kind of flesh that we have now he experienced all of the things that we experience, the temptations, the testing, the difficulties in life. He can sympathize with us. And that's what's so beautiful about it. Not only did he experience it and live that life without sinning, but he then died on our behalf so that now that the, that the Father has resurrected him and he is preeminent above all things, he now is extending grace to us that gives us all that we need to follow after him and live similar lives. He promises that he's going to Make us into His image so that when, we, when He does present us before the Father, we are holy, we are blameless, we are above reproach. Now, some of you wives are thinking, my husband? Really? That's why abiding in Christ is vital. 
Because we cannot do this on our own. Not only do we not have the power and strength, most of the time we don't even have the the desire to live that way. But we don't even know how to live that way. You understand? Sometimes we don't even know right from wrong what we should do in this situation or not do. And this is why it's so important that we remain in Christ and that we are walking in step with His Spirit because He guarantees that He will show us the way, His way. When we get off track, we get off His way, we feel this conviction in our spirits, in our hearts from His Spirit saying, "Mm -mm, no, 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 that's not the way. That's not my way. You've gotten off track. Come on back. And He extends the grace to us as we turn back to Him, confess our sins to Him, each one of them. He is faithful and just to forgive us and to continue giving us the grace to help in our time of need. That's what it means to abide in Christ is that we stay in Him so that we know Listen, if we stay in Him, as He has said we must do, now the onus is on Him to get you to what you need to be before you stand before the Father. But it is a, it is a, He is on our side. He is not only on our side, He is actually going before the Father on your behalf. He goes to the Father on your behalf. I love the, the parable that Jesus tells of the, um, the landowner who has the land and he has a caretaker on his land and there's a, there's a tree that just hasn't been producing fruit. It's just really worthless. And the landowner says, hey, cut that tree down. I'm tired of it taking up space. It's not bearing any fruit. And the caretaker says, yes, but would you just allow me just one more year? Let me give it special care, special attention, and, and, and try to, to try to help it bear fruit. If after a year it still does not bear fruit, fine, we will cut it down. Jesus tells that story. That is who our Jesus is. He's, our care, he's the caretaker. God is expecting fruit from our lives because He paid a great price to allow for us to be reconciled back to Him. Jesus is pleading on our behalf as well. He goes to the Father and asks for for more time for us. Jesus says, if you will abide in me, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can't. It's impossible. And so you will dry up, wither up, and there's one thing for those withered branches. And it's clearly stated in Scripture, Jesus said it Himself. They're to be gathered, they're to be thrown into the fire and burned. That's what Jesus said. But it need not be that way. Jesus has given us the answer to our problem. It is to be in Him, abide in Him. When we do that, He says, I will make sure that when I present you to my Father, you will be holy, you will be blameless, and you will be above reproach. 
What an incredible promise. This is, this is what he has promised to those who have gone into covenant with him. This is what the new covenant is about. If we will do our, our requirements, our conditionals of remaining in him, abiding in him, steadfast in the faith, he will do what we cannot do for ourselves. And he promises it. And that is incredible. That's why this whole thing is good news. Because we had no ability to do this in and of ourselves. That's God's grace being extended to us. A creature, a creations that have no ability to save ourselves. He has extended grace through His Son, Jesus Christ, and through His Spirit to give us the power to live in His way. So Jesus coming in the flesh is a beautiful, beautiful thing. I'm going to close here. And I want to just take a little time for us to allow for all of us to reflect on not only the preeminence of Christ, but what he's saying here, especially in these last verses we've been looking at, of what he has promised to do for us. And I want to allow time for you to respond if you would like to respond, whether that's uh, quietly in your seat, whether that's coming up to the front and kneeling before him. And worship team, y'all can come on up and, and just play some music. So, you know, here at LifePoint, we, the church leaders will always think about, you know, how to end services in the best way possible. Um, because, you know, we don't want to be, you know, we don't necessarily just want to give like an altar call every Sunday because then sometimes it becomes um, just routine. And But at the same time, we want to allow opportunities for response to what God might be saying to you, speaking to you, putting on your heart. There is something to be said about responding to what God is saying to you. He often waits and watches to see what our actions show to him. Because actions do speak much louder than words. So if you would like to respond in whatever way you want to respond, I want to open this up for us to do that. We also have... um, some ladies in the back, uh, Michelle's back there, uh, Tim's in the back, anyone that you, myself, if you would like prayer, if you just want to come and say, I have got to get this off my chest because I'm, I'm going to approach that throne of mercy, the throne of grace that this scripture is talking about. And, and the Bible says, confess my sins one to another so that we may be healed It says to confess, and he will be faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. And and so we're here for that. However you want to respond, we'll bring the lights down. We'll give you space up here. We're just going to play and just give you time to meditate on what God has been saying to us this morning and how you want to respond to it.
You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. to see